Now, this one's interesting. Chapter 21, verse 1. This is the laws concerning unsolved crimes. If a homicide victim should be found lying in a field in the land of Yahweh your God is giving you, and no one knows who killed him, your elders and judges must go out and measure how far it is to the cities in the vicinity of the corpse, and the elders of the city nearest to the corpse must take from the herd a heifer that has not been, um, not been worked and has never been pulled with a yoke. So basically, they're trying to find out whose jurisdiction this is. So you kind of measure it out with your feet, and whoever has the fewest amount of steps to the dead body from their city, that's your problem. That's your jurisdiction. So now you have to deal with it. So that city is now responsible for taking this heifer that has never, ever been worked before in the fields and bring the heifer down to the wadi with the flowing water to a valley that is neither plowed nor sown. And there at the wadi, they are to break the heifer's neck then the Levitical priests will approach, for Yahweh your God has chosen them to serve him and to pronounce the blessings in his name, and to decide every judicial verdict. And all the elders of that city nearest the corpse must wash their hands over the heifer whose neck has been broken in the valley, and then they must proclaim, Our hands have not spilled this blood, nor have we witnessed the crime. Do not blame your people, Israel, whom you redeem. O Yahweh, do not hold them accountable for the bloodshed of the innocent person. Then the atonement will be made for the bloodshed, and in this manner you will purge out the guilt of the innocent blood from among you, and you must do this to be right before Yahweh. So basically, we have no idea who killed this person. And remember, the penalty for violating certain laws like idolatry, adultery, and murder is death. There, every sin requires an animal sacrifice in order to be atoned for. Certain sins are so evil, like murder, they require the death of the human. You don't need to sacrifice an animal because the death of the murderer pays for the life of the murder. That sin is covered through their own death. But now you've got this person who's murdered, the image of God is dead, and there is no human to kill to atone for that murder because you don't know where they are. There are, but they could be dead somewhere else for all you know, or they could be way, way, way far away somewhere else that nobody knows them, or they've chosen not to reveal themselves. The reality is, is this is what we're not used to. The city that is closest to the corpse, it's their territory, and that city is under the judgment of God. We are so individualistic in the way that we think that sometimes when we hear, like, God's going to punish a city for the crimes of one person? Yeah. God thinks corporately. God thinks corporately. And we know that as much as our individualism says that's not right, we know that's how it works all the time. We know we're suffering. I mean, you and I are reaping the consequences of previous generations. We're reaping the, the choices of presidents. We're, reaping, we're, being, we're suffering all the time because of the crimes of other people. And they, that one, that practically that's how it works because... Forget who said it. Maybe it was D.A. Carson. Nobody sins in a vacuum. Okay, your sin is always going to affect other people. Judgment and consequences. But two, here's the other thing. If you don't think it's fair that you corporately get punished for the sins of the individual, then you should go to hell. Why? Because the actions of Christ, the individual, gave you the blessings to the whole corporate body. You are going to heaven corporately for the actions of one individual. So if you think it's not fair that the actions of one person should affect the fate of the corporate body, then you think you should go to hell, basically. 
So it works both ways. You can't have it like, oh, I, I want that individual act to bless you, but I don't want these individual acts. God thinks corporately. He doesn't think like an American. Now, I'm not saying that total corporate thinking all the time is good and healthy either. Because if you go to other countries like um, Japan and China, they are so corporate thinking and such an honor-shame culture that it's, the individual has no value. They have no worth. And you can do something that seems so innocent and it shames the whole, everybody, and they just, there's so much pressure on you to act a certain way and do certain things or you'll shame the whole people. And there's all this pressure and depression and unrealistic and de, um, dehumanizing pressure put on people to not shame the greater corporate. So total individualism is not healthy, and total community-only thinking is not healthy. And you see that. God does value the individual. He is protecting the rights, but he also thinks corporately, because God is the only one who can maintain the balance perfectly. And if you go through his law, he values both individualistic thinking and corporate. However, it typically is more corporate than individual because America has just pushed it to an extreme. But he makes a, a statement of purging guilt, removing guilt. What does he mean by, in other places, he talks about purging evil? Yeah, purging guilt is that they are all guilty for this crime because it happened in their territory. And the idea is they could be held accountable for whatever reason, that they haven't provided a safe enough land, that they don't know people well enough, that they kept a stranger out, or somebody among them has killed somebody and their community is breaking down that they don't know who it is. Somewhere the community has failed. They failed in raising the kid in the community who did the killing. They failed, they failed somehow. Therefore, they're all guilty of this crime in some kind of a way. So therefore, because there is nobody they can kill to atone for that crime, the punishment transfers to them. And this whole village is going to be under the punishment of God. So by killing the animal, the animal dies in place of the village, and the guilt is then atoned for. So the word purge just means cleansed or gotten rid of. And so now they're saying, we acknowledge that this should have never happened. This is not godly. We acknowledge that we should die because we failed somewhere. That's why this person's dead. But we are now trusting God in repentance that this animal is going to die in our place. Therefore, we're, no more, we're not guilty anymore. So in these other areas that we talked about purging evil, that's that same kind of idea that somehow corporately they've allowed evil to, and they need to cleanse and get rid of evil from amongst them. Exactly. You remember, our evil affects the land even. There are times that God calls us to atone for the sins like, I mean, the, we're, we're told that, like, our sin affects animals, our sin affects creation, that the land is becoming more evil. And if you've ever, some people are more spiritually sensitive than others, but if you've ever walked by, like, certain temples and that kind of stuff, you can feel the evilness. There's, they're really, I mean, I know this feels like Hollywood horror movie kind of thing, but there are certain places where so much evil has happened on that land that the land has actually been altered in some kind of way. And on a metaphysical level, you can feel, you can feel that something has happened here. And there's a sense that evil is something that we bring in to our communities. 
And, and, and in some ways, we know that on a practical level, that if you allow one really bad apple, some evil kid to come in and he's never dealt with, he's going to one spoiled apple, spoil, or one rotten apple spoils the bunch. We've seen that happen. But there's an, also a metaphysical sin guilt kind of thing that's held over the sins of the community that when more and more kids are turning out to be rotten apples in America and more and more school shootings are happening, then the entire community of America is held accountable. Because for one reason or the other, we've allowed these families to become dysfunctional and broken enough that these kids are growing up thinking that this is okay. And the fact that so many of them are starting to happen over and over and over again, we as a nation are starting to bear the guilt of all this, whether I pulled the trigger or not. Because for whatever reason, somewhere, I've allowed this to happen. I've allowed it to happen by being lazy, by not fighting certain laws or not promoting family health or becoming so absorbed in entertainment materialism that I'm not doing a good job with my kids, let alone helping my neighbors. I don't know what it is, but there is a certain guilt. And then as this happens more and more, the land actually becomes evil. And, and on a metaphysical, spiritual warfare, demonic level, I don't know. There's just so many things beyond our understanding that it's very narrow-minded of us to think atheistic and say, oh, that's just heebie-jeebie stuff. Not really. I mean, God speaks about us corrupting the land all throughout the Bible. God speaks about the whole community being guilty for the crimes of one person. This is why when it comes to the punishment of people, the whole community is expected to be involved. A stoning required the whole community because the whole community is supposed to say, I don't approve of that behavior. I don't want that in there. And whatever fault they bore in allowing that to happen, they're now taking responsibility and they're doing it. And we know that killing somebody like that's going to affect you, but that's the penalty for you for allowing something like that to happen in your community. And now you have to live with that guilt that you killed this person because they deserved a crime and you're going to be haunted with that emotional memory because you as a community failed somewhere. And that's why cities are often looked down upon in the Bible. The city is bad all throughout the Bible. The nation is bad all throughout the Bible. Why? Because when people crowd together in greater numbers, it's very interesting communities break down. It's When we get closer together, we become more anonymous. And with greater anonymity becomes a greater chance for corruption. And God does not. All throughout the Bible, the city and the nation is bad. And nothing ever good happens in the city and the nation. Crowding together is never beneficial. Now, that doesn't mean we should all go live outside the city in the country somewhere. Because the difference is God has called us into the city. And the reality is the city is the darkest place in the world now. And we are called to be the light. And we're called to go into the darkness and become the light. And you have something that the First Testament people didn't have, and that's the Holy Spirit. And greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. However, you're still to read your Bible, know your Bible, and learn the lessons in the Bible, and know that when you are living in the city with your family, and you are going to the darkness, you are to pay attention to the fact that God never has anything good about this to say about the city and the nation. And you need to go in with eyes wide open. That yes, I've been called to go into the city and live in the city and be a light in the city. 
but I've also been called not to be stupid and ignorant about all the things that God has told me about the city and the dangers to my children in this city. Does that make sense? And so th- this, is, this is why a lot of, in a lot of ways our mission is the same at the heart, but the way that we're executing it is different because the Holy Spirit changed the rules, so to speak. However, he did not change the lessons that the law was teaching. He did not change the lessons. I cannot be dumb or ignorant to all the warnings that God has given me throughout the Bible, even though I've been called into the city now. So, yeah, we are corrupt. We are evil, and we bear the guilt. And I bear the guilt of a lot of... I mean, we reap, we've, reap, we've reaped the benefits of sin, too. I mean, as white males, I've reaped the benefits of slavery. I have more opportunities than black people do by merely the fact of being white. Did I enslave anybody? No. But do I have privileges that black people don't have? Yes. In some ways, the medical community is reap the privileges of Hitler experimenting on people. There's a lot of things that we've inherited that are not necessarily evil, but we receive them in evil ways. And I think we have to acknowledge that. And I don't know exactly what acknowledging that looks like. And I'm not saying let's go Amish, because that's not godly either. But there is a sense where I come to the Holy Spirit and I have to confess things. There's nothing wrong with going to the homosexual and rather than in pride say, I'm not rejecting you, I haven't condemned you, get over it. Why are you so angry at me? The reality is the people that I'm connected to, the church, has largely rejected them. And there is a certain point where I have to say, I'm not specifically individually guilty for making you feel less than a human, but my people are. And on behalf of my people and on behalf of Christ, I am so sorry that my people and my religion has made you feel less than human. And they haven't shared the love of God. And I think if more Christians stopped saying, but I didn't do that, and just said, yeah, but the reality is you're connected to an idea or an institution or a group that has done that. And what power does that speak to somebody when you say, like Christ, I'm not guilty of this crime, but I'm going to pay the penalty of that crime on my behalf of my people for you. And we've got to think more like that. No, I didn't do this to land. No, I didn't do this to you. But on behalf of my people, Americans, white males, women, black people, whatever I am, I am sorry that we did this to you. And you, you can watch it change people. People who are very hostile towards you, when you say stuff like that, it breaks them down. They're like, I don't know what to do with that. Yeah, there is a certain sense where we have to be aware that I didn't do it, but that still happened. And now it's, as a Christ-like person, if Christ dealt with sins that he didn't do, then I'm also responsible to deal with sins that I didn't commit because I'm called to be Christ to these people. And that's what he's setting them up with. I don't care if you didn't kill this person. This is what Christ looks like. And then when Christ comes along, you should say, wow, Christ is in the law. This is already laid out in the law. Does it make sense? The Christian life is hard. It's a lot of pride swallowing and a lot. God doesn't allow for gray areas. He forces you into the gray areas and he says, you've got to figure this out. And you, you not on your own, but through prayer and the Holy Spirit. 
and you've got to face this. The law is complicated. This is why when you think going through the Ten Commandments, like, oh, okay, I'm guilty of some of that, then you start reading through God unpacking the Ten Commandments, and you're like, holy crap, I suck. <laughs> we have so failed so miserably. How did I ever think that I could meet the requirements of the law on my own? When it was just like 10 things, like I haven't murdered anybody, I haven't had an affair, I didn't, I stole some paper clips, but nothing major. Like, I'm good. And then you read this and you're like, oh, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm guilty of all the things that my people have done, too. Verses 10 through 14 of chapter 21. Israelite men were allowed to marry women taken in battle outside of Canaan. They did not already have a wife. And when she came to the land, she must purify herself and allowed to mourn the loss of her family. Basically, what God does is say, okay, if you're going to take women or children, you must keep them as slaves. However, if you're not married, you are allowed to marry a woman that is not a Canaanite taken from another land. Now, first you probably would think, wow, God, that's kind of messed up. First, you must understand all marriages were arranged. There was no such thing as romantic, falling in love, marrying somebody until the romantic movement of the mid-medieval period. All marriages were arranged. So most people got married to people that they did not know. And studies have shown, and Tim Keller's got a great book on this called The Purpose of Marriage, where basically studies show that arranged marriages typically do better than romantic marriages. Because romantic marriages, I fall in love with you, but I don't feel anything for you anymore. So that might, you must not be the one, and we leave. Arranged marriages, this is our marriage whether we like each other or not, so we now know we have to make it work. Because really, when you think about it, whether you marry romantically or not, it's kind of an arranged marriage because you begin to realize, wow, I didn't really know this person like I thought they did, and this is a lot more work than what I ever realized. Even great marriages. So that's one thing you really realize. Like the, all the Americans are like, that's not right. Well, maybe it's not. But the other thing is this. This dissuades the men from raping. Because rape was a very big part of war in the ancient world. And so if the guy is Caesar and wants her, he's less likely to rape her when God has made provisions. However, if he's already married, then there's consequences for taking her. Now, I don't know how to speak any more into that because that's one of those things I just got to plead cultural distance and just say, trust God that he knew what he was doing there. But that's my best explanation. He then goes on and says, when you're married to multiple wives, you're not allowed to play favorites. One wife is not allowed to be your favorite over another because that never works out well. Then he goes on and says, not only that, the children of these different wives are not allowed to be your favorites. Now, this is very, very important for you to understand. Just because God is regulating polygamy does not mean that he approves of polygamy. He knows that they're going to do things. Listen, just because God regulated manslaughter does not mean he approves of murder. Having a law saying that if someone kills somebody, then this is what you're supposed to do. If somebody wants a king, then this is how you're supposed to be. Does not mean that God approves of that thing. He just knows that we're going to do it 
So if it happens, this is how you regulate it. So he basically says, you're already stepping out of my will by marrying somebody, multiple, multiple wives, but don't screw it up even more by playing favorites. Because that's just going to make things even messier. And you have to understand that just because God, sometimes God allows things that he strictly forbiddens because of the persistent stubbornness of humankind. And knowing that he can't stop it, and I don't mean can't as in he's not capable, but he won't because he's got this character about free choice and da-da-da-da stuff. But knowing that he cannot stop it without violating free choice and all this kind of stuff, he chooses to allow it, but then try to regulate it and deal with it. And this is where a lot of people get really angry at God. How could you? How could you? How could you? How could you? And God's not saying, I approve. He's just saying, you're doing it anyways. I might as well regulate it. I might as well regulate it. Verse 22 of chapter 21. If a person commits a sin punishable by death and is executed, and you hang the corpse on a tree, his body must not remain all night on the tree. Instead, you must make certain you bury him that same day, for the one who is left exposed on a tree is cursed by God. You must not defile your land, which Yahweh your God is giving you an inheritance. So he says another form of punishment is hanging people on a tree. And that was often done to remind people of the penalties. Sometimes people were executed and hung up to remind everybody, this is what happens to you if you disobey God. But what God is saying is like, that's fine, but don't let the body stay up there for a couple reasons. One, this is still the image of God. And even as a dead body, you treat it with respect. And even as a criminal, you still treat it with respect because this is the image of God. Two, having a body up there for multiple days is going to rot, which is going to bring tons of disease and a society that has no really daily cleansing thing or bacterial, antibacterial stuff. So you're going to defile. So one way that you defile the, the, the land is by the mere fact that you've got this disease on a stick sitting there. Um, the other way is that you defile the image of God, and so you're bringing the curse of God because you've disrespected the body. When you see your neighbor's ox or sheep going astray, do not ignore it. You must return it without fail to your neighbor. If the owner does not live near you or you do not know who the owner is, then you must corral the animal at your house and let it stay with you until the owner looks for it, and then you must return it to him. You shall do the same for this donkey, his clothes, or anything else that your neighbor has lost and you have found, and you must not refuse to get involved. And when you see your neighbor's donkey or ox falling along the road, do not ignore it. Instead, you must be sure to help him. Now, what is this to do with murder? By allowing that animal just to wander around, eventually the animal is going to die. And that animal is that person's livelihood. Clothes. Now, I know we have like 50, 60, 70 pairs of clothes in our closet and losing something and it's sitting in lost and found for like months not really going to bother you that much unless it's like your favorite shirt. But in a culture where they own like one or two pairs of clothing at one time, to lose a pair or of something is going to affect their livelihood. It's going to affect their ability to survive in some kind of way. 
And so it doesn't matter what it is. You are to return it or hold it, not claiming it. There is no such thing as losers. What was that phrase? Yeah. Yeah. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Okay. This is really a good Clifford cartoon about how that's not right. Um, so <laughs> Clifford was biblical. It's still theirs. And it belongs to them. And just because you find it is not like, oh, it's mine now. You have a responsibility to find them or at least hold it until you find that they're coming looking for it because it doesn't belong to you. And especially in this culture, anything that they have is very little of what they have and absolutely essential for survival. And so this is a type of murder. Remember, just because you're not physically murdering them, we can murder people in lots of ways. We can murder the quality of life. We can murder them physically. We can murder them emotionally. We can murder their self-esteem. We can murder their reputation. We can do lots of things. A woman must not wear women's clothing, nor should a man dress up in women's clothing, for anything who does, anyone does this is offensive to Yahweh your God. Basically, you are to look like God created you. To become the other sex is to murder the image of God in a different way. God created men to be distinct and unique from women, and women to be distinct and unique from men. And both of them demonstrate something unique about God. And when they come together, they complete the image. If I begin to act like a woman, or my wife begins to act like a man, then we are saying that God chose my image wrong. And that he's not right in the way that he fashioned my image. And I know better than God of what my image should be. And therefore, I murder the image of God that he put on me, and I create my own image. And that's what God is basically saying. You have to realize that the reason God goes against homosexuality is because that's his image. And you're saying you screwed up. You didn't design me right. And that's a type of murder. It's a murder of the image of God. If you happen to notice a bird's nest along the road, verse 6, and a tree or on the ground, and there are chicks or eggs with a mother bird sitting on them, you must not take the mother from the young. You must, not be, you must be sure to let the mother go, but you may take the young for yourself. Do this so that it may go well with you, and you may have a long life. It's okay to murder the children, not the mother. The reality is the child, the eggs are for eating, but the mother is the, the ability to produce more. You see, taking the eggs, now I know this can be like, this does not sound good. But the reality is you're killing something when you eat it. God does not forbid the killing of animals to eat them. What he forbids is the wiping out of the animals. And so if killing the mother is wiping out the entire line, and so God has allowed us to eat the animals because the animals are not made in the image of God. But you're not allowed to eat them or kill them or use them to the point that you completely wipe out their line. And that's what God is saying. No, it's not murder to kill an animal for food, but it is murder to wipe out that family completely. And so allow the mother to live so that she can have eggs again so the line can continue, but I am giving permission to eat some of the animals. 
and sacrifice them. If you build a new house, you must construct a guardrail around your roof to avoid being culpable in the event that someone should fall from it. This does not say all you have to do is build a guardrail. The idea is that that law should carry over into everything else. And the law is, and the same thing is, is like, no, it's just bird eggs. But you can eat all the, the, the children of the cows that you want and wipe them out. These laws are meant to carry over into every other circumstance. So basically he says is this, do not let your property be a hazard to physical life. If you build a house, make sure your driveway is safe for people. Make sure that when people come up to your roof, because people lived on roofs in the ancient world, make sure you keep people from falling off. If you're going to like build something and you lose all these nails in your driveway, and people, or kids are riding through the sidewalk in the neighborhood, pick the nails up. Basically, you being careless is going to affect the life of other people, and you're going to be held responsible for it. And so in the sense, it's like, no, not like, oh my gosh, I got a swimming pool in my backyard, and the government's making me build a fence around it, and if I don't, they're going to sue me. This is so stupid. Can't they just not be idiots and not come in my backyard? No. The reality is children are children. And you have something that's dangerous. Be a godly person and protect it. Keep people safe. This isn't something to complain about. This is acknowledging that you have something dangerous. And you're doing everything in your power to make sure that when people come into your neighborhood, your backyard, they're safe. It doesn't matter how much it costs you. Because the life of a human is more important than whatever financial cost it costs to have this thing. And if you can afford to build a house, you can afford to build a railing. If you can afford to build a pill, you can afford to have a fence. If you can't, then don't build it. So those are the laws against murder. You surviving? <laughs> In some ways, I get that this is kind of like tedium. But at the same time, it's like it's, there's a... There's a a great value and an interest to realizing this is how God thinks. I mean, these Ten Commandments really cover so many things in your life. And you have to realize that, like, when you put these ten things up there, that's so narrow. That's so narrow. And you begin to realize, wow, in some ways we have really failed to teach the Ten Commandments. We were so angry when our government took the Ten Commandments out of the schools, but didn't even realize that we took the Ten Commandments out of our families a long time ago. But in other ways, you can begin to realize, like, wow, a lot of this is kind of common sense. But why is it that, that sometimes that common sense doesn't happen in our culture? Because we're so selfish, we're willing to violate common sense for our own purposes. And that speaks a lot, where we think, like, well, they have no common sense. Well, technically, none of us have common sense when it comes to something that we want. And the other sense is some of these laws are also, we realize, have really truly have become the basis of our culture. That some of these are just so good that even sinful human beings have acknowledged the wisdom of these laws and when they've woven them into our country's laws. And you realize that these laws really are good. They really do put everybody else before yourself. They really do hold you accountable. It values the individual. It values the community. And it really pushes you to an extreme love that does not allow you to have any excuses or justifications. 
And a lot of things that we anger, get angry over, this is the other thing that's really convicting for me. It's so easy to say, well, they're the stupid ones. They deserve it. The law doesn't even allow you to say that. The law doesn't allow you to say that. It doesn't even allow you to think that way. It doesn't allow you to say, well, they have no common sense, so they deserve that, or they made their bed so they can lie in it. Now, that don't mean that the law gives you permission. To, that doesn't mean no justice at all. Yes, or it'll be held accountable, but it doesn't allow you to have that attitude, that spirit. You realize the law is truly good, and the law is comprehensive, and the law is behavior, but it also goes straight to the heart every single time. And I hope you're seeing that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with saying this feels a little tedious. Because not everybody is gifted to enjoy the law. There's probably some lawyers here like, I'm eating this up. We're not all designed the exact same way. And we're not all going to get excited about the same things in God's Bible. And it's okay to not be like totally excited all the time for every verse of the Bible that you read. But hopefully you at least see the spirit that's there and you realize, wow, this is really deep and way cooler than I can ever imagine. And that excites you. And that awakens a new passion in you. And I'll be the first one to admit, this, this is not the first thing that I want to read and get excited about. I'd rather be in the narrative. I can't wait till we get to Judges and Joshua and Ruth. That's where I thrive. But at the same time, the, the, the depth of this and the, the, the thought and the complexity and the godness of it all, when you really see what he's saying, that's what excites me. That's what I think is cool. So I hope you feel that and sense that.